Space Shuttle, this is Flight Safety. This podcast may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Please keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle while in motion. You are clear for launch. Hey, everybody. Before we get started today, I just wanted to say a quick thank you. I did a fan fiction panel at KC Planet Comic Con last week with my buddy Sarah at the Talkin' Fanfic Podcast. It was so much fun. We had a great time. It was a great panel. I just wanted to say thank you to everybody that showed up and came to see us at KC Planet Comic Con last week. Special shout out to the person on the front row who came to see us the second year in a row. You were wearing a green dress. Your hair is so cool and your glasses are cool. Your dress was cool. I was hoping to say hi to you after the panel, but I didn't get a chance. So I am saying hello now. Thank you so much for coming to support us and see us. It means so much. Thank you so much, everybody. Now on with the show. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 4 of a fic titled The Building of Clan Frequency, part of the House That Vector Built series by today's guest fan fiction writer, Grizzly Teddy Bear. He remembered crawling out of the well of the Allspark. He remembered chasing down other mech animals for food. He remembered raging at the sky when it rained fire down on them until the Predaking bid all Predacons take shelter and enter stasis. He remembered not making it to the safety of the cave. Ravage remembered onlining again to look into the optics of a curious two-legger with hands outstretched and a warm EM field to communicate, not a threat. Soundwave. He remembered the mech looking at the ruined hind leg and producing a patch. Soundwave even attempted to bring him food to eat, but it would take several attempts until he found something Ravage liked. Soundwave even brought Ratchet one time, only to be told that Predacons have very sturdy auto-repair abilities, and that Ravage would be fine with food and rest now that he was out of stasis. Ratchet was convinced to help the process along by resettling the leg plating and checking the integrity of the struts. There was much complaining from all parties involved. The Predacon had never experienced kindness from any being before. When the day came Soundwave didn't return since Ravage was now healed, he decided to track down the host. Tracking the two-legger was fun and easy. Soundwave didn't know he needed to hide his tracks and scent or dampen his EM field. Ravage found him in a few drawers. He walked up the steps to the temple that was still under construction. Ravage enjoyed the mild terror he could sense from the other two leggers. He sat down a respectful distance from the priest and let out a trill. Soundwave noticed the acolytes he led in movement meditation trailing off in the middle of their forms and turned around to blink in surprise. He motioned for one of the more senior acolytes to take his place and turned to walk towards Ravage. A bold higher priest made an attempt to stop Soundwave. Ravage sprang up, let out a fierce growl, and raised his plating in warning. He turned back to Soundwave when the host crouched in front of him. You found me. What now? asked Soundwave. He held his hand out in friendly invitation. Ravage nudged his head under the priest's hand and purred. This two-legger was safe. He was kind and he didn't know how to protect himself. 
Ravage would keep him safe. He poured all of this into his field and hoped Soundwave understood. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world. Greetings from the wild arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fan fiction writer today is Grizzly Teddy Bear. She's been a member of AO3 since 2014 and currently has three fan fictions posted as part of an ongoing series for the Transformers fandom. Hell yeah! Grizzly started writing fan fiction sometime in 2001, but took a long break and spent some time relearning her relationship with writing. She's now back in full swing into the creative process and loving it when she isn't writing. Grizzly enjoys collecting Damascus weapons, yes, historical reenactments, reading fantasy and science fiction books, watching anime, and learning German. Grizzly works as a mental health social worker and helps people find healing and helps people to understand that it is okay to exist outside of the norm. Grizzly, welcome to the Fanfic Maverick. How you doing today? I am doing well. I am super excited to be here. I am joined by my plushie of Optimus Prime. He is helping me today. Yes, I love it. I love it. That's so, so cool. Now, you told me in an email here that you use some of your time in German class trying to describe fan fiction to the other students. I do. And it is absolutely amazing to see the reactions of people who don't necessarily speak English. So we're, we're both struggling with German together, and I'm trying to describe my hobbies and my interests. And they're just like, oh, and just the amazement and the curiosity. And it's just something that I was just decided to be like really loud and proud about over the past year. And it's just people who have no idea who I am. They just know I'm trying to learn German and they're just super excited to be like, what do you write? What's your pen name? I'm going to read it. So it's awesome. Nice. Nice. I love that. I love the idea of being loud and proud. And also that experience of trying to express that in another language too, right? Like I'm sure that that's a very interesting experience trying to translate that into another language. That sounds like so much fun. It is. It is. Because I got to make anything that I'm doing fun because otherwise I won't do it. I'm old enough to actually say, no, I don't want to. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) this is one of the ways I make learning German fun because most people are like, why are you learning a language? I want to. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? I want to. That's good enough reason, right? Yeah. That's good enough reason for anybody. You know, speaking of likes and all those things, your history with fan fiction, because everybody has a history. Do you remember finding your very first fan fiction? And what was that like? I do. Back in high school, because you and I are somewhere around the same age, there was Cartoon Network on cable TV. And there was a little time segment after school called Toonami that would run heavily edited anime. Like they would change all the words, all the blood would be gone. But I was fascinated because it was not American cartoons. So they ran an anime called Gundam Wing AC. Mm -hmm. It was, yep, it was only 49 episodes long. And I was very, very sad 
when that ended. So I took to the internet in search of more because I would, first of all, I was convinced that, no, no, it, it can't be just 49 episodes. There, it must be wrong. Uh, <laughs> no, it was only 49 episodes. So I started looking up everything Gundam Wing. I found all of these fan websites that were explaining the pseudoscience behind flying, fighting space robots. And then I found what I didn't realize at first was fan fiction websites. I just thought it was like I finally, you know, sought my goal. I found it, you know, with a continuation of the story. But it was fan fiction. It was fan fiction. And my first clue was that, oh, teenagers are having sex. What's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> like, wait a second. That wasn't on Toonami. Yeah. It's like, hmm, how much did they edit out? <laughs> So that that was my first experience was actually an accident of finding fan fiction. And then I was just hooked because, you know, who doesn't have that experience of, you know, imagining things about their favorite TV shows or movies or books and like, I want to know what this character is thinking. What's that person doing, you know, so-called off camera? And here were the answers. And I, I was just... Ever since then, I was just a dedicated lurker at the time. I just would search everything on Google and then scrub my browser history afterwards because I didn't want my parents to find out <laughs> what I was oh, yeah, up. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That was the most important part of like the yes. internet age back when we were teenagers. Like You'd have all your fun, but then you have to go like you know retrace your steps and clean it all up, make sure yes. nobody found what you were yeah. looking at. It, it was the <laughs> age of don't put any bookmarks, just memorize partial URLs. Yes. <laughs> and put everything in there manually. Oh, my God. Do I remember that? Oh, my God. Now, this sounds like you found fan fiction on somebody's, like, shrine site. This doesn't yes. sound like an archive, right? Like a shrine no, no, site? No, no, Because this was, I don't remember exactly when fanfiction.net happened, but this was before then. So this was, like, the, the GeoCities and Angel Fire websites and the age of web rings and email digests. So organization was not yet quite a thing. <laughs> so it, it was it was an interesting time to be trying to hunt down everything. <laughs> you kind of had to find it by accident, you know? Yes. Like an archaeologist digging through trash or something to find like, oh my God, that's exactly what I was looking for. But it would take you a thousand years to get there. You had to click on a lot of shit. You did. And even when you were on the websites, there was the little hidden link that you had to find to actually get to the fan fiction because it, there was such fear at the time about lawsuits. And, you know, I think it was also just some sh shame accompanied like, you know, what would people think if they knew what I wrote? So like there was these little hidden links that you just have to like hover your mouse over the entire web page to find the fan fiction. And then once you did that, then you had to click on the link that you declared yourself over 18, whether or not you were. And then you're like, oh, look, here's all of the fan fiction instead of just the sanitized fan fiction that doesn't have any of the dirty bits in it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I remember all of that, especially those are you over 18 kind of yes. things because you're just like, I don't know what this is supposed to keep out. It certainly wasn't keeping me out. I was like 14, no, you know, no. being like, yes, let me in. <laughs> yeah, there was just such fear of lawsuits and people coming after you that I I think they 
thought it was going to protect them somehow. I don't know if it actually would, but I think that's what they were thinking of. No, and that's a valid point. That's a valid point because I know that all throughout the 90s, these shrine sites were being hit with cease and desist letters from official law firms who were like, you can't use the IP for this franchise on your website or in your fan fiction. And so people were scared. And it was kind of like, you know, the age of prohibition where you're knocking on the door of the speakeasy, giving them the secret passwords so you can get in, yeah. get to the good stuff and all that. So that's absolutely valid. The people were trying to hide stuff um, in some cases as much as possible to protect them from legal action. Yeah. And there was this kind of weird thing within the community at the time of like you would you would almost eat your own young if they didn't abide by the unofficial rules of fandom at the time. So like if you were young and naive and just like enthusiastic, you would kind of get like talked down to not necessarily like beat up and chewed up and spit out, but like it was just like, no, you don't do it this way. Don't you dare do it this way. You must do it this way so that we don't get in trouble. So there was this weird kind of infighting also kind of built into the community at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny when you look at that because then you trace it back historically and you can see why there were rules like that. Because there was always some sort of incident that took place in fandom that people could remember and then the rules came from that, right? And then they would get real sensitive <laughs> when people would break the yes. rules or whatever and be like, no, 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 we don't do that because, or sometimes they wouldn't even tell you. And then you'd have to figure it out for yourself years later. Yeah. Yeah. You just had no access anymore and you didn't know why. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know what it kind of reminds me of? I know you have cats. I have cats. It kind of reminds me of uh, when you watch a family of cats, you know, like a mama cat and her little baby cats and stuff. Little baby cats are so enthusiastic and they just want to like touch everything and claw everything and, you know, act the fool all over the place yeah. and stuff. And that mom cat is there to be like, mm -mm -mm, and she'll take that kitten by the scruff and she'll shake him a little bit, you know, <laughs> to kind of yeah. teach him. And it's kind of like that, you know, like I remember that environment of your elders were there to kind of help guide you along and stuff. And they would, they would correct you if you were acting the fool or doing something that was not okay or whatever. A lot of us learned that way. Yeah. Oh, I definitely got my hand slapped figuratively numerous times <laughs> uh, because of my enthusiasm with the uh, email digests of my wanting to reply to everything that I loved. They're like, no, sweetie, just reply one time to the email and list all of the things in that one email. Don't like hit reply for every single thing you liked because you're just spamming everybody. <laughs> <laughs> they're like 50 emails a day from Grizzly. Mm -mm. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like, slow down, honey. It's okay. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. That's so funny. That's so, so funny. So, you know, like you mentioned, you and I were about the same age. So we remember coming up in the fan fiction world and in the online fandom world at about yes. the same era and everything. So you've mentioned some of the things that you remember from back in that time, like the email digest. I remember those news yep. groups. I remember the web rings. Oh, my God, the web rings. <laughs> uh, the MIDI music that would come up and blare on your speakers when you'd like pull up somebody's shrine site. Because yes. if you had a shrine site, you had to have like the MIDI music yes, playing in the background. Yes, and it had to be on blast. And yes. there was no... <laughs> There was no other volume to have. So you would be browsing the internet as a reader 
with your computer on mute because you didn't want other people in the household to like know what you were doing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes, I remember all of that stuff. There were so many interesting things going on back then. I was just wondering if you remember any other like interesting little tidbits from online fandom spaces back then. Well, the other era is like when fanfiction.net kind of came into be that kind of was the death knell for the web rings and the email digests. You still had some of the shrine websites persisting after that, but fanfiction.net became the next hub and it was the start of some organization, but you still had a lot of the culture of fear so that everybody who posted on fanfiction.net, and if anybody really wants to like go visit my early works, they're still there under my same name of Grizzly Teddy Bear. Every single work had to start with a disclaimer that I do not owe this, I do not make money of this, you know, please don't hurt me. And then you had to like include this little kind of semi-threatening thing of like, if you flame this, I will eat you, you know, kind of statement because there was also all of the people on there, you know, that were the reasons for the fear that would come and, you know, put horrible, horrible reviews and comments on all of your stories. And, you know, as a young creator, you know, even if you're old chronologically, if your creative process is young, that is devastating to have come at you when you're just like, you know, looking for feedback, you know, and here's this like clawed monster coming at you through your comments. Yeah, FFN could be brutal for that. You know, the internet was still such a brand new kind of thing back yes. then. And, you know, I guess in this respect, it really hasn't changed much. But, you know, people get so brave when they're behind that computer and they just think they can say whatever damn thing they want to people, regardless of the fact that there's a human being on the other side of that computer, you know? Yeah. So I do remember those disclaimers of like, please don't flame me and everything. I'm told by other writers who still post or cross post on FFN that in some respects that hasn't changed much. Like you still get some really weird feedback comments from people yes. on FFN. Yes, yes. but it, it was also the beginning of the actual organization of fandom community because like they had forums on there where the creators could talk to each other and you would develop this weird kind of pseudo relationships with your reviewers because you don't really know who they are when they're going yeah I like your work but for me personally it was you know fanfiction.net was love boat for nerds I actually found a boyfriend through my writing on fanfiction.net no way yeah, yeah. He was a fellow writer. I'm going to call him out. He's Casa House. He still has stuff on fanfiction.net if you want to read it. It's lovely, lovely stuff. And then I actually was like, did all the things that you're not supposed to do on the internet, which is like shared my personal email and started, you know, corresponding with some of my reviewers. And I'm actually still friends with some of them and talk with them today. I'm going to call out Kimari Girl because she is awesome too, even though she, she, keeps all of her stuff in her head instead of posts it. I still love her anyway. And it so it was it was this really weird environment on fanfiction.net and it still still is. I mean you get Rogaine advertisements on there and I don't know why teenagers need Rogaine, but <laughs> so it's so so weird over there. I haven't actually posted anything over there, but I'm not willing to remove my stuff from over there either. Do you remember the early rating system over there on FFN? Yes. Yes. Because it used to be like G, PG, PG-13, 
And then I think there was an R rating, and then they had the NC-17. Yep. Remember that? <laughs> yep, I remember that. And then they changed it to, like, weird grade levels, like K and then T, and then, like, I think there's still G, and, and it's just like, I don't Yeah, understand. there's a, so still G, there's an yeah. M. I think M is the highest one now, if I I'm not mistaken. I think so, because they, they pretend that there's no more smut on FFN. <laughs> yeah. Um, I say okay. it that way because my stuff is still up there, and there's definitely sex scenes in my old stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, they, they oh haven't yeah. Found it yet? Although now that I've you know put it out there, maybe they'll come for me. But who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a crazy thing. That was a crazy time because I read all kinds of smut on there. Yeah. So that's kind of weird to me that they attempted to clear all that out. I know a lot of people's stuff did get nuked and deleted yeah. on that website, but but not everything. Not everything for sure. Um. You know what else I remember about that time? And this was mostly a shrine site thing. I remember back then that when you saw a link for a fan fiction, instead of telling you how many words it was, they would tell you the file size of the fan fiction or the page with the fan oh, fiction. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Yeah, they wanted you to know what the file size was so that you could judge in your head how long it would take your system to pull up this page of the fan fiction. Exactly. Most of us were probably on dial-up at that point. And so you could click on a, a longer fan fiction that you wanted to read, and it could easily take your computer five minutes to pull up the entire thing. Yeah. So you'd have to like sit there and watch it happen, or you could, you know, go take a break, get a drink of water, yeah, <laughs> do some jumping yeah. jacks or something. Back in the days where you turned on your computer and then went and did something else and then you had to come back later and then your computer was booted up. Yes, the boot up process was like a thousand years long. It was horrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I remember that. Absolutely. But yeah, I remember the FFN thing too. That was interesting. That happened in 1998 is when okay. FFN first came out. So yeah, we were all running around on the personal archives and shrine sites yes. before then, which was a yes. lot of fun. <laughs> I feel like the fan fiction scene today has changed a lot compared to what we saw in the 90s. So I'm just kind of wondering, in your perspective, what are some of those major changes that stand out to you the most? There's a lot more organization with the creation of Archive of Our Own, AO3, there's a lot more sense of community and the idea that, hey, it's okay that we do this now. It is okay to talk about it. It's okay to do it. It's okay to actually exist. You don't have to hide about it. And it's also kind of bled into, you know, like the original content creators are kind of like getting behind the idea of fan fiction as well. Because first of all, it's free advertisement for the source material, the fact that somebody is creating this and putting it out there, somebody who may never know what the original work was might read a fan fiction and then be, you know, all of a sudden interested in finding out about the original content. So there's definitely that. And there's a lot more social media presence about it. I'm, I'm personally petrified of social media. So I'm not necessarily the best person to talk about like Tumblr and you know, things like Discord servers, because I'm not on either of those two. But the fact that like, since AO3 doesn't have its own little member forum, like fanfiction.net does, 
creators have taken it upon themselves to create that space for themselves. And it's beautiful to just see everybody bouncing ideas and being accepting and supportive. And just, I think we get more content that way from that amount of support and enthusiasm that people find with each other than if you had every creator existing within their own little silo. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more ways for us to connect and have those places of community and belonging in these uh, modern times, <laughs> right? Yes. Because there's yes. just so many different platforms for that now, which is fantastic, right? We didn't necessarily have that as much back then in the 90s, so. No, there was MySpace and... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was MySpace and there was like the beginnings of Facebook, but you had to be a college student with a college associated email to be on Facebook. I don't think there was any kind of fan presence in either of those contexts at the time, because again, with with that fear of, of lawsuits and cease and desist letters and, and things like that. Yeah, yes. And that's why I'm so glad that you pointed out the difference between back in the 90s when everybody was petrified of the creators, the original content creators coming after them and being antagonistic. And that did happen. That was the attitude, right? And now we come today and we're not necessarily saying that every you know content creator is uh, necessarily supportive of fan fiction in these modern times, but there are so many that are very openly and very loudly supportive of the fan fiction writers, fan artists, and anyone else who creates works off of their work. And that's so interesting to see because we did not see that in the 90s. No. So the fact that we do see it now is just phenomenal. It comes with its own problems, of course, but it, it, it is does. an interesting shift. Yeah. It does, but it shouldn't because when you create art, you often start by imitating the people that you admire until you find your own voice in the creative process. So by not allowing fan works to happen, you're actually stifling the art community as a whole because you're telling somebody, don't be creative. Right. Exactly. You're trying to put that gate there where the gate shouldn't exist. No. It's so interesting. I am on Twitter just in a peripheral kind of way. Yeah. But I happen to see tweets from a lot of screenwriters and a lot of people who write for TV shows and such. And I am astounded by how many people who are actively in that space who are around our age. They started with fan fiction. And now they're the ones writing the TV shows and the movies and the screenplays and all of that. But a lot of them got their start writing fan fiction. You know, yeah. you can't get away from it now. No, you can't. In fact, the whole reason why the Doctor Who content returned to the world was because of the persistence of the fan community. There was fan magazines and videotape, you know, snail mail exchanges of content you know, the, the people who are writing the Doctor Who scripts today are the people who wrote the fan fiction back in the 90s. Yeah. I mean, how cool is that? Right? It like, is. It's amazing. You know? Yeah, it is amazing. So the fact that, you know, there's folks out there who did get their start doing stuff like this. And so uh, you're absolutely right. It hurts everybody when you put a gate there. It's kind of funny. You and I were talking about leverage one time when we were yes. emailing back and forth. And I feel like that's almost the same thing where we had that big 10-year gap 
between the original Leverage and Leverage Redemption. And the content creators say all the time, the reboot happened because of you guys, because Absolutely. you guys kept this alive. You know, you didn't let it die. It was the people writing fan fiction and doing the fan art and talking on Tumblr and Twitter and things like that about, you know, yeah. this franchise that they loved. And sometimes really magical things can happen when you keep something alive like that. So you never know, right? No, if you want a completely loyal and rabid army, just get a bunch of fan creators frothing at the mouth and unleash them in whatever direction you want them to go. And <laughs> yes. eventually you will get what you want. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I wish more people understood that, not in a nefarious way or anything, but just, no. you know, yeah. the power of fandom communities to accomplish amazing things. Absolutely. It's real. It's real, and we should only use our powers for good. Yes, with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility and all that jazz. So, Now, I am curious to know about your favorite things about fan fiction as a whole. Like, as a whole concept, what are your favorite things about that? Okay, so this answer has, like, two parts to it, because as just a fan myself, there's one reason why I like fan fiction, and then there's my mental health professional hat that never truly comes off of my head, which is a whole other host of reasons of why I love fan fiction. So we're going to get a little bit down, dirty, psychology nerdy. And I don't know if I should apologize for that or not. But nope, never apologize okay. for that. That is awesome. Okay. So just the, as a fan, I love minor characters. I love subplots. I love plot holes. I love that my imagination has opportunities to just dive in and figure something out that the original writers just either left out on purpose or didn't think of. And as a fan, I can go seek out works or as a creator, I can create works that answers these questions. And I just I love that because my my brain is always hungry for new information and it's it's just amazing to go, oh, somebody else has this question too. Ha ha. And you end up falling in love with characters that I don't know if the original content creators intended you to fall in love with. Like, <laughs> I loved the Naruto anime. But I really loved this little minor character of Shino Aburame to the point where I felt like I consumed the internet in my quest for all of the fan fiction. And I was just like, oh, well, I guess I got to write my own now. So <laughs> I love that. I love that because I love the process of falling in love, even if it is with a fictional character. That's my answer just as a, as a fan and as a fan fiction creator of why I love fan fiction. And then we get into the more complex answer of me as a mental health professional and probably why I have so few friends <laughs> because of how I view the world. But it's a new way to explore the human condition. Because even if you're writing things about giant talking robots or aliens in outer space, it's not the fantastical that you connect with, it's the flaws that you connect with. Because who can relate to the perfect person or the perfect being? Not many people, because nobody thinks of themselves, hopefully, as the perfect person. So we all kind of latch on to the, the dark parts of ourselves. And we resonate with characters that also have dark parts of ourselves. So there's a lot of opportunity for empathy 
with those characters through that storytelling experience. And then the storytelling experience is actually the oldest experience of developing empathy in the first place. It's not a formal educational process. You don't actually get sit down in a classroom and told, this is what happiness is. This is how you recognize happiness is in other people. This is sadness. This is how you recognize sadness with other people. I don't know if we would actually benefit from a classroom on empathy, but we're left with the storytelling process as our classroom. And you want to think of this storytelling process in the oldest traditional sense of the process, you know, the oral tradition, where you have the village elder sitting down with, you know, the gaggle of youngsters and telling a story. And it's the process of making that story fit your audience. That is where the magic happens. Because if there's not an interest from that audience about the subject that you're telling the story about, you've totally missed your opportunity in the first place. So if you have like the simplest story of Billy had a dog, Billy lost his dog, you know, then you turn around and, and your audience has no idea what a dog is or they've never owned a dog. Well, then you can ask them, you know, what if Billy had a teddy bear and Billy lost his teddy bear? And if everybody in the audience is like, oh my God, I have a favorite teddy bear. Now you've got them. Now they've learned what loss is through that story. But you had to change it in order to make it hit that audience. So that's what fan fiction does, is it allows you to change the story to actually have a different message, to actually have a different audience experience. You don't have that ability. You know, if, if you're in a, a high school literature class and you're reading Chaucer and you're just like, yeah, I don't really connect with this dude, then, you know, that supposedly amazing literature experience is lost on you. Uh, <laughs> it's a very stale, scaled down version that you get in school. And if you want to kind of get into, you know, human development kind of discussion about this, empathy is a process that happens throughout life. You can hear the same story when you're a little kid, and it hits you totally different than that same story as you're a teenager, as you're an adult. It's one of the reasons why, oh gosh, the movie Shrek. If you watch that as a kid, you're going to laugh at Donkey for being a dork. You know, if you watch that as a teen, you're going to go, wow, there's really weird unresolved sexual tension between cartoon characters. And then when you watch it as an adult, you're going, oh, wow, look at the message about, you know, racism and discrimination and, you know, the political system. So... Yeah, it's one of those things where just because you told the story once at one time doesn't mean you can't learn something else when you read it again. And that process is a little different when you have the neurotypical versus the neurodivergent. The two flavors of neurodivergent that people are most familiar with are those with ADHD, you know, the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and people on the autism spectrum. Because you have with ADHD a faulty filter, your one brain system that is supposed to tell you, hey, this is important, pay attention to it, isn't quite working the way it's supposed to. And that's where you need like therapy techniques or medication to jumpstart that system going. So you kind of 
actually have an advantage in empathy with ADHD because you're paying attention to everything, even when you're not supposed to. <laughs> so they actually learn people really well if they have that difficulty of having ADHD. Versus if you're on the spectrum, one of the ways that you can have autism is just a lack of understanding of social cues. So there's a lot of you have to teach them the empathy lessons and the social cue lessons over and over and over again because they can't really generalize. You know, the idea of Johnny lost a dog is its own thing. And Johnny lost a teddy bear is its own next thing. And then we have to learn the same idea for Mary. And then we have to learn it again for Billy. And so it's exhausting <laughs> to have autism spectrum disorder because you're just like, when will I understand all of this? Because you're constantly having to relearn all of the social scripts. And then we have this beautiful, beautiful brain system that no matter where you are in the spectrum, whether or not you have ADHD, whether or not you're neurotypical. And it's literally called the default mode network. And I just love that the idea that this is what your brain is supposed to be doing. It's the default. And it's your brain at play. It's your brain at rest. It's your imagination running wild. That's actually a function necessary for healthy brain development. So I get upset when kids don't have recess <laughs> and they don't have time to play or anything like that and or creators don't have time to sit down and write because this is actually necessary for your brain. It actually makes you more productive at work, but don't tell your boss that. They'll never believe you. So that is like my meandering, wandering psychological reasons why I love fan fiction. It lets you explore empathy with characters that you can connect with that you might not have connected with quite on the same level in your original content. It allows your brain to play. It allows your brain to wander and have fun. And who doesn't need more fun in their life? Yes, precisely. I love that answer so, so much. I just have to tell you, my brain is on fire when I hear <laughs> stuff like this because it just hits all of these different things that I think about constantly with storytelling and especially with fan fiction. Um, mm -hmm. I love how you pointed out that fan fiction seems to hit those three major things that you were talking about, right? Yes. It's a story, and that's important for us as humans to understand basic concepts sometimes. Yes. It is a mode of teaching empathy and compassion to yes. human beings, which I love that. I was watching YouTube this week. It was a Buddhist monk talking, and he said something along the same lines where he said, you know, empathy and compassion are things that are learned. We have to learn those things and practice them, right? Yes. It's a cultivation. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. Like, I had never thought of that before, that these qualities are a cultivation. And one of the ways that you can cultivate that is absolutely by indulging in some sort of storytelling, whether you're the one telling the story or whether you're the one being told the story. Absolutely. Yeah. And that I love how you've pointed out that fan fiction is one of those ways that can help people deeply connect to a story that they wouldn't otherwise be able to because these fan fictions are taking these common 
I don't know what you want to call them, common cultural characters that most of us are aware of if we like that particular fandom. We're all aware of the characters in that fandom, right? And we're much more likely to feel a connection to the story just because we already love this universe. We already love these characters, right? For various reasons. And then we sit down and we can read a story about those characters. So not only is our brain on fire because we're in this field of play and imagination, but we're so much more open to whatever information we happen to be receiving as part of the storytelling process. And I think that that's beautiful. I know that personally for me, and I've said this so many times, I feel like fan fiction for me has been such an education on human emotions the emotional experience of human beings because, uh, you know, sometimes I struggle with emotions and identifying them and recognizing them. And I have observed changes in my brain and the way that I think and the way that I recognize emotional situations now because of fan fiction. And I know that sounds super weird, but I'm telling you, like, no, it's a it thing. No, it makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense because... Here is an environment that doesn't have to work to convince you that, you know, here are characters that you can connect with because you're seeking out fandoms that you already have a connection with. Maybe you're reading about some characters that you never thought in a particular way that a creator has presented them before, but that's part of the adventure of going, oh, I wonder what this is. But here's something that already has that connection. You're going, ah, okay. I don't have to read the back of a book and try to think of like from these three paragraphs, am I going to like this? Now, this is already about Transformers. This is already about this video game. This is already about this book. And so I know there's a 70% chance I'm going to like this. So there, there's power in that too. Right. So all of those things combined together, I think that your point was made beautifully, that fan fiction is uniquely suited to be a very powerful mode of storytelling that I think is absolutely vitally necessary. Yeah. Honestly, there's a vital necessity for storytelling in this particular mode that I think is gorgeous. It's beautiful. Y'all are doing God's work, in my opinion, (laughs) um, with all of these stories that you write and uh, allow us to enjoy. Because, you know, certainly my life has changed because of it. And I'm sure a lot of other people can say the same. So um, now, speaking of Transformers, I was introduced to Transformers fan fiction, I think sometime last year when I interviewed another Transformers writer. And I was so grateful for that experience because I said in that episode that I had sort of overlooked Transformers fan fiction in the past just because I didn't get it, you know, I didn't understand it. And then I was exposed to it and found out that, oh my God, I actually really love Transformers fan fiction. (laughs) I go into it more or less fandom blind because while a lot of my peers watched Transformers when they were kids and teenagers and stuff, I didn't have that experience, so I don't really know anything about canon when we're speaking about Transformers, but I love reading Transformers fan fiction. So tell me how you got into Transformers. What's your background with that fandom, and what are your favorite things about it? Well, I actually do not remember how old I was when I saw my first episodes of the original, what they now call G1 for generation, first generation Transformers cartoon on television. I do know it was back in the Stone Age when there was no remote controls. You had to walk across the room to push the buttons on the television to change the channel. And I got cheeky one day 
and decided to reverse the order of the buttons that I was pushing. So I was just like, you know, just messing around like kids do. And all of a sudden, there were talking, fighting robots and humans. And I was just dumbfounded and fascinated and just staring at the television from one foot away. And then my mother's voice comes from down the stairs and goes, if you keep staring at the television like that, you're going to need glasses. Um, (laughs) Oh, God, I got that same lecture. (laughs) Well, I do wear glasses. I don't know if I can blame my fascination with Transformers for that. But it was just this beautiful thing to me as a kid. I probably was like seven if I have to like try to think about it. But I just, I was just doomed. Transformers lived in my head from that day forward. And there was all of these stories in my head about adventures that I would go on with talking robots and, you know, driving around in a car that talked to me and could drive me because, of course, I was seven and couldn't drive. So that was exciting. (laughs) Yes. Um, I love that. Yeah. And so, but the Transformers franchise was ultimately created because Hasbro wanted to sell toys. It was that 1980s thing of like, let's create a toy line and then let's make a cartoon series to sell the toys. And so Hasbro has kept the Transformers fiction alive just so that they can sell toys for, you know, 35 years, 40 years. I don't really remember how far back the toy creation was. So like every once in a while, you would just have this new cartoon series pop up and I would be fascinated. Most of this just happened in my head. I was petrified to ask for a Transformers toy from my parents as a gift. I don't know why. They probably would have bought me one because it wasn't a Barbie. And then in, oh gosh, what was it? 2007, the Michael Bay movies were being advertised and and came out in movies. And I was just like, oh, this is my childhood dream come true. Live action talking fighting robots with real people. And now intellectually, of course, I am in my mid-20s. I know that it's like some guy talking to a tennis ball, you know, on a special (laughs) effects set. Yes, of course, of course. (laughs) But my imagination was like, oh, my God. And that's kind of when I dove down deeper into fandom. And I was like, there is Transformers fan fiction? And I fell in love with all the minor characters with Transformers, but only the Autobots. Because I was kind of naive about the appeal of villains at the time. So I fell in love with Ratchet, you know, the the medical officer for the Autobots, who's like this weird character, kind of like, um, if you remember that TV show House. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's kind of like that kind of a personality in fandom. And that's kind of like fed into his canonical character development because a lot, again, yeah, because you you have a lot of fandom and canon interaction with the Transformers universe. It's kind of nifty. I found out that there were graphic novels of Transformers. And because Transformers is a Hasbro property and Hasbro owns a lot of other things, you get some beautifully bizarre canon crossovers. Like, you can look this up on Amazon. I'm not even joking. 
but there's a My Little Pony and Transformers official crossover called Friendship in Disguise. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) I have not purchased this to find out what kind of beauty this, you know, thing is. But I am so desperately curious. I'm probably going to break down and buy it because I don't know how that works. I really don't. But it, it's been created by somebody. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. You got to dive into that just for curiosity's sake, because now <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. Like, what? That yeah. sounds amazing, actually. It, I, it I guess does. you could do so much there, right? Yeah. You're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that would work, but it sounds beautiful. But with with that creation of the Michael Bay movies, I just, you know, I was seven years old again with the Michael Bay movies. And there is some love-hate with Michael Bay about how the movies were created. And I just kind of tossed that all over my shoulder and go, I don't care. It lives in my head instead of on the screen. Because I was so mad when they killed off Ratchet. He's actually my favorite character, even though he's not in any of my stories yet. Yeah, yeah, I imagine that that would have been uncool to see that, right? I had to torture myself with that movie that he died in because I had to watch it twice because when he died and when the first time I watched it, I just like blanked out the rest of the movie and I was just like, (laughs) I was traumatized as a fan. I was so traumatized. But the idea of alien culture, alien human interaction, you know, and... When you look into the the canon of the history of the Transformers and the planet that they come from of Cybertron and their religious system, and it's just like, oh, wow, there is so much depth here. There's so much to explore. And my little nerd heart just, you know, felt at home with all of that wonder and all of those questions and all of that exploration that was just being given to me on a lovely, lovely silver platter. It's like, here. This was designed specifically for you. So it was it was just so intriguing to just dive in as as a fan and then as a as a creator of fan fiction. I just I was just doomed. I just really, really was doomed. I now have stuff of Transformers all over my house. There's literally the face of Primus actually judges me in the bathroom. It's hanging on the wall <laughs> oh, in my yes. bathroom. Yes. 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 He is judging you while you sit there on the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) That is so fantastic, though. That's one thing that has fascinated me about Transformers, the fandom. Just judging from the different Transformers fan fictions that I've been enjoying this past year, it gives me the sense that the universe is so big and so expansive. And so there's so much to learn and there's so much that you can do with it because it is so expansive. And there are so many characters. I'm constantly amazed by the different characters that people are writing these fan fictions for because there's just so many directions that you can take it. It's amazing. Yeah. And Hasbro has been very careful not to declare this particular universe is the prime universe. They actually have it as canon that there is a multiverse. And so all of these iterations, because again, ultimately they're, they're focused on selling toys. So they need to create different backgrounds and different characterizations for these characters with every iteration of fiction that they come out as canon. And so every time 
you get a new universe, you get, you know, all of this stuff repackaged and you may, you know, have a villain that is now a good guy or vice versa, or, you know, maybe they never left Cybertron or maybe there's time travel or maybe there's life after death. And it's, it's endlessly fascinating how they have just been very, very careful to just say all things are possible. So number one, they can still sell toys. But as a fan, you're just like, ooh, this is tailor made for me to get my claws into. Yes. And you certainly have. You certainly have. You have been recently writing a series, a, a Transformers fan fiction series called The House That Vector Built. And you've been posting that up on AO3. I will say... Of course, we're going to talk about this series today, but I will say that I <laughs> got special access to chapters of this series that have not yet been posted on AO3, and we had your permission to talk about that today, yes. um, as well as the stuff that's already posted. So you know what this feels like to me? This feels like to me, and this is like one of the pinnacles of my podcasting career here, because um, you know when you're like some big broadcaster and you talk about books or something and somebody gives you the copy of their book that's not even published yet, like it's coming, you know, and you get that advanced yeah. copy and you're like, I'm so special. I got to read it before everybody else. <laughs> that's what this feels like to me. And I thought this is the first time I've ever been given like advanced access to anyone's like fan fiction project. And I just have to tell you, I'm on top of the world right now because um, that's just so special. Like I <laughs> I love that. Yes. So I, yeah, I have achieved something here in my broadcasting career, but um, (laughs) I have enjoyed the series so much. It is so creative in so many different ways. And we'll get into that here, but I'm wondering what inspired the whole story for this particular series. I want you to tell us briefly what the series is about, and then maybe you could go into like some of the arcs and themes that you wanted to explore here. Sure. All of that stuff. So... The inspiration for this entire series, I can blame my husband for. Ah. Yeah. He bought me a book about five years ago called The Covenant of Primus, and it details all of the pre-Earthfall history of the Cybertronians for the cartoon series. I think they have a little bit of it still on Netflix. It might be on Paramount Plus called Transformers Prime. And I... First of all, loved that cartoon series. I watched it over and over again. And in fact, I'm, I was very, very sad that they took some of the seasons off of Netflix because I was rewatching it in German to learn my German since I had like most of the story memorized in English. Oh, nice. Yeah. It was a nifty, nifty language learning trick. And it just exploded in my brain. You know, I read this book and everything was just like, oh, Because here's the stories of how the villains became villains and why they became villains and how it became twisted. And I just got endlessly fascinated with that and the culture presented to me. I also just had, you know, most of my writing has original characters in it. So my brain just kind of went, what if we had a human that was raised by Decepticons but didn't know it? And then somehow landed over with the Autobots and was just basically like, what the hell is going on? Why do I understand what they're saying? Why do I know what they're talking about? What happened? You know, what was my life that I didn't understand? So 
I had that as the original plot bunny, but then I wanted to explain how we got there. And so my backstory kept needing more backstory (laughs) (laughs) until I actually, you know, literally my first story in the series, Primus Wept, is the moment of creation. You know, I I had to go that far back (laughs) to kind of set the stage because I didn't want to just do this long-winded exposition. And that didn't feel like my style. There's absolutely nothing wrong with people who write that way. In fact, I love reading content that is presented in that way, but it just didn't feel like me. So I wanted to give little snapshots of the characters and have the character development be the main driving force in my series and then have the plot points be something that the reader kind of pieces together in the background. So you you have this idea of family that is absolutely a thread throughout everything in this entire series. The human family, the family of Decepticons that accidentally adopts humans and what that looks like and the consequences of being raised by an alien (laughs) are vast because, you know, it's that worldview portion that I'm playing with there. And it is, you know, what happens when you have the rug pulled out from under you is one of the themes that I'm exploring. So I'm exploring that, it's, you know, what is your identity? How is that identity developed? You know, what does culture play in that role of identity? I play with the themes of sexuality and gender identity because according to canon transformers do not have sex they just kind of get birthed whole from the allspark but i didn't like the idea that they couldn't have pleasure so i explore you know how how does that work when you have humans interacting with that idea how do they go uh aren't you parent and child what is this it's like no 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 we all have the same parent so it's fine We just call each other like brother and sister because you humans have such limiting language. I explore neurotypical versus neurodivergent because in one of the chapters, I deal with head injury and, you know, what that does to, in this case, a minibot long term, you know, because a lot of people like to say, oh, we just take out the faulty chip and put in a new one. And I'm sitting there and going, but you wouldn't do that to a person wouldn't just like remove a chunk of their brain, put a new piece in there and be like, yeah, you're good now. So I wanted to play with the idea of what would disability look like on a robot? And what does that mean in a family when you have such interconnectedness? Because everybody kind of leans on each other in a different way to kind of make up for any deficit that they have. And If one of that family is forcibly removed from that situation, what would the rest of the family do to get that family member back? You know, so I'm playing with all of these different themes. I'm playing with the idea of free will versus destiny and what happens when a character is told this is your destiny and they go, screw you. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, alien religion and mythology and It's all of this kind of stuff because the Transformers canon allows for this. I can totally claim 
that this is all canon, but I, I labeled it as alternate universe because people get very, very attached to their particular version of canon, and I wanted to be kind to those people. I'm just kind of throwing everything in there because that is that's just the human experience is everything's happening to you. Right. Yes. Everything is happening to you. It can be messy a little bit yes. sometimes, right? And there can be a lot of stumbling around as we figure stuff out. But I think that's what I appreciate the most about this series is uh, in the messiness, there are so many gems, right? And it, it yeah. feels familiar because I feel like we all have that experience in our lives where we're like, wow, you know, like everything does feel so messy. But there are so many things that are important in all of that mess in important moments that we can focus on. And I just really loved that about your series. I really loved that you did start all the way from the beginning, just because <laughs> for someone who doesn't have any prior exposure to some of these ideas, it was really interesting reading about the ancient lore of this alien mythology, right? The origin story. I didn't know any of that before I read the first part of your series here and was like, oh my God, that's so interesting. <laughs> Especially the idea of being split you know what I mean? Like that idea of being split into two pieces and those pieces being different and then that constant longing for reunification. Just so interesting how you kind of explored those ideas and concepts there. And then, of course, it was very interesting watching Soundwave and Shockwave. I have heard those names before in many other fan fictions, right? But it was just very interesting to see, like, the relationship between these brothers, you know, and how they're different beings with different ways of approaching things. And it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> like that's so crazy. Yeah, yeah, because I made them basically decide that they were they were a family unit of two at first. And they're both canonically Decepticons and, and bad guys. But I wanted to show the little bit of, of difference between their two philosophies because uh, because Soundwave is a host with all of these symbionts under his care and Shockwave is, is canonically like this evil scientist and it's just my brain went well they both have the the word wave in it so they must be related and latched onto that idea and it's just like how do you get a bad guy with all of these other little mini bots under his care. You know, how does that work? You're working for a war tyrant. How did this happen? So I, I wanted to kind of show that progression, that history. And Shockwave is basically really, really hampered and incapacitated by this idea of, I want the world to be this way. I am going to make the world this way. And the world has other decisions, dude. You know, they, <laughs> you know, everybody else should have a say in this. <laughs> right. He seemed very rigid in the way that he thought about things and approached things. Whereas Soundwave seems more, uh, I don't know, adaptable. We were talking about empathy before. And even though he's Decepticon, there's this measure of empathy that's still in him. Like, it's there. Yeah. I see it, you know, especially with this family, this clan that he's gathering around him. I think that was one of my favorite parts of this whole series so far was, um, you know, I loved the building of clan frequency because you do this beautiful job of introducing us to all of these little bots that he's collected over the years. 
And the way that he treats them and the relationship that he has with them, it's very kind. It's this very nurturing environment between him and these bots. And I loved reading about each one because you kind of do in, in that particular fic, you have multiple different chapters that kind of focus on the different bots and kind of show things from their perspective. That was such a joy to read about all of these different bots and how they perceive the family environment. I think my favorite was um, was probably, was it chapter four, I think? I think that was the one for Ravage. Yes. Everybody's favorite murder kitten. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I just, I loved this one so much. You know who this reminded me of? Speaking of leverage, I heard Elliot in this story of Ravage. Yeah. Because just that idea of, I'm pretty strong. I can protect you. I can do the hard things for you. If you'll have me, if you let me be useful to you. And I just thought, oh, my God, I've seen that before. I just get so attached to characters that are like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Ravage was fun to write because he can't actually talk, but he's still sentient. He can still communicate in all these other ways with his you know, electric magnetic field, with the ability to communicate through the clan bonds. And, you know, body language. So it was just like, you know, if my cat could have a conversation with me, what would that look like? <laughs> was kind of like that. And, you know, I even very much make him the murder kitten because at the end of his chapter, he leaves, you know, a dead animal outside of Soundwave's, you know, quarters <laughs> as like, here you go. I love you. Have a dead animal. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He sees himself in that role. And there was just something about that that I was like, oh. I yeah. love you, Ravage. But it was just so interesting to see how they've made this family amongst themselves. Because you were talking about wanting to explore the theme of all of these little symbiote bots. They each have what you may call some sort of disability, you know, because most of them were found damaged. There's a war going on and everything. So there's lots of opportunity for damage. And so they do all have something challenging. Right. Yes. For each yes. of them. And they just sort of all roll with it. They know each other's strengths and weaknesses and they're stronger together. So they choose to stay together so that they can help each other and protect each other in the ways that they each need. And I just thought that that was just a beautiful concept. Like, I want to be part of this family. It was it <laughs> sounded so cool to me. Yeah, I kind of made Soundwave the prince of the land of misfit toys where he just kind of sees you as you are any damage that you have, and just says, you still deserve to be loved. And who doesn't want to hear that? Yeah, he just accepts it and is like, nope, you're mine now. These are all mine. You know, and Shockwave, like, it pisses him off all the time. But, yes. you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was really just really, really cool to see that progression. And then, of course, to see them eventually get to Earth, right, where they start interacting with the humans and stuff. I had never before considered the possibility of being able to impersonate a human as a Transformer. Like, that had never occurred to me. Is that something that's happened before, or is this unique and specific to your fan fiction? That is actually canon. Is it really? Yes, because there is, in the, in the original Generation 1 cartoon, there's a few episodes number one where all of the transformers just like have something happen to them and they magically become humans and then there's also a couple of episodes where 
Spike, the main human character of that cartoon series, magically becomes a, you know, transformer. So you have this kind of back and forth already established, but what is kind of really explored now in more of the canon and more recent series and movies is this idea of a hollow form where you kind of like project this hard light hologram into the world and that's what interacts with people. It's kind of like the holodeck on Star Trek, you know? Yeah. When Moriarty just kind of runs amok <laughs> and it's like, I'm a real boy now. It's um, such a great episode. <laughs> it is. It yeah. Is. Okay. Yes. That makes so much sense as you explain it like that, like a hologram from a holodeck or something. Yeah. Because, yeah, like it just surprised me so much. Like, wow, you can do that? That's amazing. Because they do end up doing that. Like, they come to Earth, they find this guy that, uh, you know, passes away in a car crash in the middle of the road. No one else is around. And they just think, well, I guess we'll just take on this guy's identity then. Yeah. Like, all right, you know. But then, of course, it's so much more complicated than that because the guy ends up having kids. He adopted them, right? Yes. And the paperwork was still in process. So when they hacked into the primitive computer network at the time, the kids weren't there. So this is kind of like my little homage to like the absolute disaster that used to be technology when I was a kid. Oh, for sure. For <laughs> and sure. The disconnect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The disconnect. I had the feeling that this could have been either the late 70s or the 80s sometime when they find this yeah. guy out on the road. Because just the way that you described technology, what happens is they um <laughs> they go to this guy's house thinking, okay, we're going to take over this guy's, uh, you know, identity. And that's when they discover like, oh, shit, this guy has kids. <laughs> like, that wasn't in the plan, you know? <laughs> yeah. But the way that you're describing the technology of this time, this seemed pre-internet. It gave me a very, like, 80s vibe. So I was thinking yes. it could have been the 80s sometime. When they crash land and find this It guy. is like mid to late 80s. I didn't want to get really super specific in the time period with that I was writing. Number one, because I don't know all of the dates as to when all of the technology was created. So I wanted it to, like, to be a little bit forgiving for myself as the writer. But it was also definitely kind of like the 80s time period where computers were just starting to be a thing. The internet wasn't really public. It was something that the government did. So I wanted to kind of give that context because eventually we're kind of going to wander our way into the Michael Bayverse timeline, sort of, my version of it at least. And I wanted to sort of kind of maybe establish <laughs> a proper appropriate timeline of character development for my characters. Yeah, and that absolutely came through because it was it was kind of funny. I had oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I was um amused. Let's use that word. I was so amused <laughs> by Soundwave's like thought process here where he's yes. thinking, "Okay, like I have this thing that I want to do. He wants to infiltrate human uh society and he wants to help feed certain technologies into this human society to use for his own purposes, you know? So this is like the long con here. This is like, we're talking decades of work that needs to be done here, which amused me, right? Because I don't think I would have the patience for such a long con like this. I would be like, ah, it's too much work. I'm not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, here we come into the the canon thing too. And and some of the terms for the time frames I think are fan creations. Somebody can absolutely correct me on that if I don't know what I'm talking about. But like the idea of like, you know, the earth time frame is all built around the idea of the earth going around the sun and how long it takes the earth to rotate and all that stuff. So if you take that kind of analog and put it onto the planet of Cybertron, you know, one year for them is actually 78 human years is this the general agreement. Okay. See, I was wondering that. I was because you can see as you go through this that you actually go through pretty much the entire childhood, all the childhood years of yes. these original characters, these kids that Frank had. And it made me wonder how many Vorns would that have been for the Transformers here? Because they're kind of raising these kids from young kids all the way up to adults. And to me as a human, I'm thinking, you know, damn, that's like a long time, <laughs> you know. But then it made me wonder, like, OK, I know there's a difference between human time and Transformer time. So how many Vorns would this have been? So maybe for them, they're just like, ah, oh, this is just a little blip on the radar for us. Like, exactly. This is fine. Exactly. The way they talk about it in the Michael Bay verses, they often refer to humans as insects, you know, when the Decepticons are talking about them. And it's because we kind of have the lifespan of a mayfly compared to them. You know, they are millions of Earth years old, and we just kind of exist and die within what would be for them a calendar year. Okay, so that begs the question then. If that is the case, what value do you think Soundwave saw in raising these girls because if their lifespan is equivalent to a fly or a gnat or something right the way yeah. we would see it in human perspective why go through all the trouble then <laughs> i mean like they could have just i don't know there's lots of things i could have done with those yeah. kids um when i read this i chose to believe that soundwave does have this code of honor in there somewhere there's some sort of compassion or some sort of empathy where he seems like he cared enough to not want to get rid of the kids as some minor nuisance, but chose to incorporate them in his long-term plans. So I guess that kind of does beg the question for me, like, did he see value in that beyond just the experience of it? Did he do it for their sake? Did he think it would help him at some point? Like, what was his motivation here for deciding to take these kids on like that? It's definitely part of my characterization of him of just, you know, he has compassion for the broken things. Because when you're introduced to these kids, they are not in a happy environment. And, you know, they understand that human kids don't just get birthed whole from the AllSpark like Transformers do. They actually need care. They need, you know, guidance. And they don't really have that. Because Frank, it's a good thing he died on the highway. <laughs> Frank was not a nice human. <laughs> right. He was not. He was absolutely not. He was not. So it kind of tugs on his little, on his spark a little bit of like, oh my gosh, you know, how can I just leave them here? And so we, we get a little bit more of the Land of Misfit Toys kind of idea of like, all right, because they don't take up that much time in my grand scheme of what I want to accomplish here, I can afford this. 
I can do this. And of course, when you raise a child, you end up learning so much about yourself. You thought you had the world figured out, and then this, you know, screaming thing came into your life, and you're going, oh, I didn't understand this. So it's a little bit of a learning curve for him, too, during this whole experience, where it's just like, yeah, sure, I'll just raise them, and oh my god, this is not what I expected. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where I have to give him so many kudos, because not only does he decide to take them on, but he decides that he actually wants to do like a pretty damn good job. Yes. He could have just been Frank. Frank was one of those like, I don't know, he took those girls into his home. Yes. And I guess made sure they didn't like run out into the road and get run over by cars. I mean, like almost like an absent father kind of thing where he was kind of there, but not really there in Soundwave. I felt like he just made this decision that, yeah, I'm going to take these girls on and I'm going to be their father, but I'm not going to be this absent parent. I'm actually going to try and I'm going to do a good job. And he does. He takes such good care of them and he recognizes the challenges that they have. You know, Jojo is somewhere on the neurodivergent spectrum and needs a lot of assistance with different things. And then there's Charlie, who, you know, they both have trauma from their past and the way that they were raised and being with Frank for a bit and everything. So it was really cool to see Soundwave not just be like, well, I'll feed them and I'll make sure they don't get run over in the road. But he takes it so much further than that and is like, no, we're going to teach him all sorts of things. He teaches sign language to the girls because sometimes Jojo has issues with speaking out loud and he wanted to make sure she had a way to communicate. So he ends up like teaching them this old clan like transformer language with the accompanying sign language. And the way that you describe that learning process, it was so involved and it was so detailed. And so like Soundwave puts a lot of like thought and effort. There's a lot of effort here that I'm seeing in the way that he raises these girls. And I was just like, wow, dude. Wow. Like I have to give him so many props and kudos for that because he didn't have to do that. Yeah. He didn't have to go like all of the extra miles, but he had to put in some effort because you don't want child services to come and, you know, be a nuisance because he's trying to be on the down low. He recently kind of escaped all of the other Decepticons and, you know, he doesn't want to go back. Yeah. So part of it is self-preservation, but then part of it is like, oh, I kind of like you. I kind of love you. I kind of want you to actually be a good human. And there's actually a lot of conflict in that, too, because he's feeding this technology to humans with the idea that that's the only way to win a million years civil war is introduce a new element. And here's these kids that he's raising. And he's also going, oh, how do I do that? So some of it is also just like trying to sneak teach them the skills that they're going to need to survive in this grand plan that he has as well. Right. It was interesting to me how he teaches the girls like Transformers Tai Chi <laughs> and like weaves in the creation story, you know, of the Transformers, like mythology, which I thought was really cool. He teaches them like weapons and things like that. I mean, like he teaches them all of these crazy things. They turn out great. Yes. You take us all the way through their childhood into their teen years, into their adult years. It was just so, so interesting how they turn out. 
in the last chapters that I read, which were advanced chapters, they're not even posted yet, y'all. No, um, no. <laughs> but in the latest chapters that I read, Charlie's like 20, you know, she's in college. Jojo is 15. And these girls have turned out great. They're smart. They know how to get things done. They're self-sufficient. You know, Soundwave did a really great job <laughs> with these girls. And yeah. I'm just like, oh, my God. But that's where the story, I'm sure, will take such interesting turns because at this point in the story, these girls don't realize that they've been raised by a Decepticon. They don't even know what a Transformer is. They just think Frank is Frank, you know, and he had some weird stuff that he taught us. And, (laughs) you know, it's weird because we don't see this kind of shit going on in other families. And we don't know why Frank did that, but uh, whatever. And so I'm sure it'll be this interesting unfolding for them. Of learning, like, what does all this mean? (laughs) You know? Yes. And along the way, this is a very long kind of multi crossover thing because I don't know about your life, but I just kind of view my personal life as just like this series of happenstances and serendipity and coincidences. So I kind of wanted to replicate that for Jojo, who truly is the main character of this story. And basically, she meets all of these people that later on she needs to rely on. And the fact that she is neurodivergent, the fact that she does have trouble with emotions and connecting people, you know, watching her struggle with that idea of, I can't do this by myself, you know, because Frank or, or their dad slash Soundwave disappears. You know, he's just gone one day. Yeah, he's found out eventually one day. Yeah, he's just gone. And the girls don't know why. They don't know how. They just know they had a horrible feeling one day and they come home and everything's gone from the house. And, you know, there's this note that says, don't find me. And they're just like, BS. We're going to find you anyway. (laughs) That is not what you taught us. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, at this point in the story up to the part that I read, they're sort of in the process of getting established on their own so that they can be self-sufficient. But in the back of their minds is this thought of, well, we need to find Frank. We need to find our dad. I know he said, don't find me. But like you said, you know, bullshit. Of course, we're (laughs) going to go after him and we're going to find him. Because they don't understand what's really happening here. They just know that they had a very strange, unique upbringing. And so (laughs) I'm sure that there will be this unfolding of slowly realizing what all of this stuff was that they were taught over the years by Soundwave slash Frank. But there were just so many really fun parts in here. It was just it was delightful to watch these kids grow up and the interactions that they would have with each other and with Soundwave. Um, I have to tell you, that part with the piano was awesome. The part where she's tuning the piano a little bit in the shop and then decides to test it out by playing Rachmaninoff. I died <laughs> and went to heaven yes. at that part. I just have to tell you because um, Rachmaninoff was the last classical piece that I learned on the piano before I stopped oh. taking lessons. And it was like the pinnacle of my piano playing career because Rachmaninoff could be really difficult. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when she just busts out Rachmaninoff right there in the shop on this piano, I died of happiness because I was like, yes, yes. Yeah, Yeah, because normally when you like test a piano, you think somebody's going to play chopsticks. But no, no, no. She's going to bust out the Rachmaninoff and just like floor everybody. 
and then negotiate for the price after she's just dazzled everybody because that's when you smell blood in the water and for negotiation is when they're everybody's just going uh with their jaws oh yeah (laughs) she plays the whole thing without the sheet music i'm not worthy i could never do that without the sheet music so she just busts out with this like you know crazy it was just so great i had a couple questions for you sure So you do have a lot of focus on original characters, which I love. Yes. But I wanted to ask you about that because we both grew up in the same era of fan fiction. So we remember in the old days, at least I do, I remember that there was this attitude back then about OCs. Yes. You remember that? Yeah. There's so much negativity and hate towards OCs and then like... The, the little subsection of OCs of Mary Sue where you like put yourself into a world, which I find hilarious because, you know, professional fiction is all original characters. So why are you hating on mine and fandom? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it's because everybody was just automatically perceiving OCs as Mary Sue's, you know, like making that automatic connection between the two. I know that I certainly had that because I was taught that by other people in fandom who had been in fandom way longer than I was. So I kind of looked to my elders for stuff like this. And I just remember that attitude. And I remember making that connection myself of, oh, OCs, they're probably just thinly veiled Mary Sue's and stuff like that. And I kind (laughs) of had to outgrow that and change my mode of thinking, which I did over the years, right? So here I am at 40. And when I see OCs, you know, I love them. I am so happy that people have this massive amount of creativity and they want to explore that, not just with the canon characters, but with the OCs. So I wanted to ask you, it sounds like you grew up with that same idea of old school fandom's hatred of the OCs. (laughs) How did you get over that? Did you have to get over that to eventually get to a place where you could include and create OC characters for your work? I always love the things that nobody else does. So I personally, even when there was a lot of hate for original characters, loved reading about them. So I just kind of fell into the idea of, I want to write them. Because it's one thing to take a canon character and make them yours. But OCs, to me, I don't think they're necessarily easier or more difficult, but it's a different process to get into that mindset of an OC versus a canon character where some of the personality is already done. So you're, you're doing a little bit more of the groundwork with an original character with an irony. I love the hate of Mary Sue's because there's a whole genre of anime of that you know, that you can watch on television now if anybody has a Crunchyroll subscription where it's all about, I woke up in another world. So I I laugh that there's like a hate for Mary Susan fan fiction when there's an entire subgenre of anime all about that. But I just didn't care that nobody would like my fiction because that's not why I created these characters. That's not why I am writing. I am writing mostly for the fun of the exploration of the story that's like half formed in my brain and watching it be more fully formed throughout this creative process. So the fact that somebody goes, I don't like what you wrote. I'm like, all right, that's okay. You do you. I'll be over here doing me and uh, we'll just be on our merry way. But 
there was a lot more overt in your face, like, you shouldn't be doing this. And it's just like, yeah, whatever, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that I feel like I've observed as a one of the major changes in the fan fiction scene from back when we got started in it versus today. I don't see necessarily anymore that same vitriolic hatred for OCs yes. that I did back then. Of course, like it still trickles down and you still have plenty of people who are just like, I don't like it. But it doesn't seem to be this stifling, I don't know, attitude that it was. I'm happy for that change personally. <laughs> I think that's good. Yeah, no, I, I like the change as well. It's a little bit less duck and cover in my creative process than when I started writing on fanfiction.net, where you really had to have this kind of cadre of supporters around you to kind of insulate you and balance out that negativity. Now you can, if you don't want to, you know, engage in all of the social aspects of fandom, if you just want to be in your own little creative silo, it's a lot easier to do that because you don't have all the vitriol coming at you. I mean, there's always going to be internet trolls. I think that's some unwritten rule, but you can recognize them as just trolls now instead of like this long-winded weird explanation of why you're going to hell because you wrote about robot sex, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I love your point about getting to this place in your own personal journey where you're not creating anymore for other people necessarily to give you that approval that you're looking for yeah. or to be like, oh my God, you're the greatest or whatever. You're creating for you because this process mm -hmm. is good for you and you like exploring these things and i think that's such a beautiful place to get to because the people who are going to vibe with that will find you and they will find your story and those are the people that you want around you anyway who cares if everybody doesn't love the story right like it's for yeah. you anyway yeah yeah i'm sharing i'm putting my story out there not because i want people to like give me accolades although if you want to tell me nice things about my story I will happily absorb that too but I'm putting it on the off chance that somebody else resonates with this that somebody else actually can find meaning in this and even if nobody ever gives me a kudo or a review the fact that like there's a couple more hits on my story this week compared to last week it's like oh that gives me warm fuzzy feelings yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, it's never a waste of time to share the things that we create with other people because people will resonate with it. The right people will. You'll touch somebody, you'll reach somebody that needed this, which I think is just a beautiful thing that happens in fandom and fan fiction spaces. I'll never stop talking about that, that I just think it's so magical <laughs> that the right stories find the right people. So I heard you say earlier that Jojo is sort of shaping out to be the main character here, which is fantastic. Is she the one that you like writing for the most as far as character perspective? Or are there other characters that are part of the story that are your favorite? I was just wondering, like, who your favorite character is to write for for this series. I'm a sucker and love everybody because I am a terminal optimist. We talked a little bit about this before we went on air, that... I just think as long as you can crawl your way out of any situation, it's still a good day. So I kind of like Jojo because she really does embody that. But I kind of give that little bit of flavoring to all of my characters. 
And I kind of liked the idea that I had to get in the head of a Decepticon that I originally absolutely despised. Like, I hated Soundwave as a little kid. He was weird synthesizer voice guy that was blindly loyal to Megatron. His symbionts were needlessly cruel to other humans. And I had to, for lack of a better word, humanize them for the purpose of my own fiction. And the process of doing that just kind of made me fall in love with that whole clan that I made up. And it challenged me to write a chapter from the perspective of Little Murder Kid and of Ravage. It challenged me to write from the perspective of somebody with a head injury. It challenged me to write from the perspective from a piece of furniture. Who would think that? You know? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Who would think that? And so... I love all of the characters for all of the little challenges that they throw at me, but probably Joe gets the most attention just because she has the most rounded characterization at the end of all of this journey of development that we see for her. Yeah, and I can see that. I can see that. That definitely comes through. And she's such a fun character. I've just loved the way that you've crafted her journey and her upbringing and the triumphs that she has and the challenges that she has. It's just really, really cool to see the way that you've pulled this all together. It's fascinating. And I've loved, loved, loved reading this series. I can't wait to see where it goes. There were so many little scenes from this fic that were just really cool, especially like to see them all pull together as family. You did mention before, and I certainly saw it as I was reading this, the theme of family and how important that is, is everywhere in this series. I loved it. I was wondering, is there a particular scene or part of this series so far that you're the most proud of? Oh, geez. It's hard for me to choose just one because my writing style is to just drop you in to the important moments. I don't write this long, coherent, singular plot line. It's more of a character study, and then the plot line is kind of what you piece together in the background. So to me, all of it is cool, but I, I'd suppose that one of my favorite scenes that I wrote, which hasn't been posted yet, is we're there in the library. Charlie, Frank, you know, Soundwave is Frank, and Jojo all go to the library because Charlie needs to learn how to drive and she needs to write a paper for high school. And Soundwave's idea is like, all right, we're, we're just going to be efficient and do all the horrible things at one time. Charlie, you're going to drive me, you know, as the car that you don't know is sentient to the library. And Jojo's in the back, you know, basically trying really hard not to be a little sister. And then, you know, the scene that unfolds in the library of... And this is totally my nerd because I miss card catalogs, you know, but the idea of like what you had to go through to pull a research paper together, I'm probably giving some people nightmares with that particular chapter when it gets posted. And just like, again, you see that connection through everybody because Frank has a moment. He learns something that he's just like, holy shit, I stepped in it and I didn't even know it. and. You know, the girls recognize that and they're trying to like help him out a little bit. And Jojo gets caught up in her own thing because she's just a kid. So she ends up distracting herself <laughs> from helping her dad. But Charlie's just like, hey, are, are you okay there? 
you're normally like so cool, calm, collected, and you just, you know, for you, that was you losing your shit. (laughs) So the fact that all of that care goes both ways, you see a lot of it from Soundwave to the girls. And then in this chapter, you get introduced the idea of, no, that, that goes back. That goes back too. It does. You can feel that from both of these girls in this particular chapter. I'm so glad that you chose that because, uh, yeah, I remember reading this chapter and going like, oh, my God, that's so cool. You know, I loved how they had that moment, that conversation where Soundwave is talking about like how Jojo's his resonance, you know, and Charlie is his harmony. Those are important moments with your father, you know, as you're a kid and you're growing up. And I felt like that was just a really important moment in their development, like this important conversation that they're having with their father that they're probably going to remember for the rest of their lives. Also very cool that, of course, you put in like the old school library stuff in there, because I certainly (laughs) remember going to the library in the 80s. And that is how you found books and things that you wanted to get from the library. There were no computers at that point. So, um, yeah. I told you this before we started recording, but you have lots of little references to the time period that the kids are growing up here. So you have a lot of like nostalgic 80s and 90s references here with some of the technologies that are mentioned, dot matrix printers, IBM computers, Atari gaming systems, things like that, that were just really delightful to find in this fan fiction. I just, I loved it. (laughs) Yeah, it was fun to look back at that because... There's definitely a lot of nostalgia happening right now because the world just keeps getting crazier. So there's a lot of just cultural nostalgia for the quote unquote simpler times of the 80s and 90s. Never mind that they weren't simple, but they seem simple when you look at them in the past. And it's just fun to just pick out the random fun childhood memories that I had and give them to my original characters in a different way that shows the ability to kind of develop as a person and going, huh, I guess I was kind of experiencing that too as a kid. (laughs) They were absolutely fun to pick out and find and everything and just be like, oh my God, I remember that. That's cool. Now, I know that with your particular writing journey, you established that you kind of wrote your first one back in 2001, which was, you know, when you think about it, oh my God, that was such a long time ago. And then you took this break. So you had this whole journey taking that break and then coming back into it and kind of establishing your why of why you want to keep creating and why you want to keep writing. And here you are now creating new stuff and posting your series on the net. But I just I love the idea of this long, you know, meandering (laughs) journey (laughs) with writing, which because I think that's beautiful that there's so much to be learned there, you know. So I'm wondering, as you think about that journey for yourself, what are some encouragements or advice that you might give to other fan fiction writers out there? Well, because I believe in mangling all quotes I always encourage people to do the weird that you want to see in the world, because if you wait for it, you're just going to be waiting for a very long time. So if there's something that you want to see, you know, do something. There is so much opportunity now to put it out there in any type of manner whether you want to be completely anonymous or you want to, you know, wear your birth name out there in the fandom, you know, that you can get so much feedback and support if you want, or you can just hoard it to yourself in a, in a little known computer file somewhere or an 
old-fashioned notebook if you actually like writing with pens and pencils, that it's a brave new world in order to, you know, to you know, have that creative process. We've got so much more community that we didn't have before. But just like general writing tips, I have some of those too, if you want me to give some of that out. Because that's kind of where I've landed professionally is like learning how to motivate yourself. Right. That's a big one. Yeah. Because we often only think of the end goal when we want to start something. And that can be our first mistake. Not that you shouldn't have a goal, but that we forget that there should be a bunch of tiny steps in the process to get to that end goal. So I started my writing this particular series that is long and meandering, you know, with basically the end of the story in my brain first. And then I had to basically break it down into all of the little fics and chapters that get me there. If I only thought of the end goal, it is huge and unwieldy, and it's probably going to take me years to finally get to where this story is like, at least the main plot point is resolved, and my character of Joe is fully developed, and then I can just like throw her out into the rest of the world. So break down whatever it is you're doing into as small of a step as you need. For some people, that means creating an outline and character sheets and kind of launching into this thing as almost as if like a D&D &D campaign, and that is amazing. Some people, it's just the story comes out and, you know, that's fine too, because people often get caught up in the idea that my process has to be the same as this other person's process. And that is totally not true. Like if you listen to two well-known authors that have a bunch of interviews out there, uh, Neil Gaiman and Stephen King, and people ask them all the time, what's your creative process? And they're completely different. They are completely different, yet they are completely successful creators. So you can break things down as small as you need to. If you don't need to, that's fine. But if you do, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, and sometimes that helps you get started. Sometimes it's continuing, you know, for all of the creators out there that have like the massive works in process, the WIPs, you know, they start it, but it's the continuing that's the challenge. And I recognized that for me with this whole big monster that I've created, that was going to be my personal challenge was continuing this and to keep going after I started because it's going to take me so long to get where I want to go. So that is one of the main reasons I write in tiny chapters and in moments of time and let the reader piece all of the background together because that way I can continue the story. So, you know, the ficlet, the little tiny character explorations totally a way to just keep your narrative going if you ultimately you're just like yeah I have all these projects in my life you know but yeah they're just kind of all half formed and, and live in the living room <laughs> kind of thing and then sometimes it's just the fact that as much as we like to think as human beings we have to be motivated to start something 
what actually gets us started on something is obligation. So if you want to start creating something, set yourself a time, set yourself a date, and give yourself also some healthy dose of reality that you're a human being and life happens. So if you don't exactly get it on that time and date, you know, set yourself a backup time and date. And, you know, that little sense of obligation will sometimes get you started to the point where after you look back and go, hey, look what I did, then the motivation tends to follow that, you know, feeling of success to continue afterwards. So as much as we like to think that motivation happens first and then we go do something, it's actually motivation happens after we feel the obligation to start something. Ooh, I like that a lot. I think I needed to hear that, Grizzly. That was for me <laughs> right there. I, I needed that one. I love my that. To you. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I love that. I love that. Because like you said, if that's, you know, a piece of advice that maybe doesn't work for everybody. Cool. But there are so many people that that would work. Right. And that would be so helpful. So thank you. Yes. Thank you for You're sharing welcome. that. That's very cool. Like I said, I think I needed to hear that one. That was good. Yeah. If you're just a person who thrives in chaos, then just throw caution to the wind, dive in, and you'll have a grand old time. You don't need an outline. You don't need all this stuff. If you're just like, I love chaos, then you just throw all of that advice out the window and just like, you know, have verbal diarrhea, and then you'll have a fic at the end. It's like you were saying, that's the beautiful thing about creation is there are so many different ways to create. There are so many different personalities creating, right? And so what works for one person is not going to work for the other person because we're all different. And so ultimately, it's this challenging journey of figuring out what works for you specifically. And I think that there's a lot of value in that odyssey as we try to figure out what works for us. And uh, and you never know, those same things could work for others out there also. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Lastly, do you have any other fan fiction writers that you wanted to shout out on the podcast real quick? I have several. I have several because being a consumer of fan fiction for decades now, so some of these creators are not active anymore. But that doesn't mean you can't still go back and enjoy their work. Sometimes I think there's a little bit of disservice with the way Archive of Our Own is organized and that like your most recent thing is automatically put at the top. And I think that is a little bit of a disservice to the older creators that might be in the background there. So some of my people, I don't know if they're even still monitoring their account, but it doesn't hurt to just say hello and talk to them anyway. And this spans several, several fandoms. Like, I'm currently just, like, neck deep in the Sandman as a reader. So I love Monstrous Regiment. They have just beautiful, beautiful Sandman fan fictions. And then there's so many things of Transformers, but Lady Dragon 76. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this one. I think they call themselves Irian Sado. They're Transformers, and they actually kind of were some of the inspiration for my neurodivergent robot, I, you know, as like a thing. It's like, ooh. Fuzzy Penguin is one of the OGs of Transformers. Jedi Buttercup is like the crossover queen. She just writes little tiny crossovers that are so rich that I'm just like, ugh, why are they not longer? 
Yeah, we've got the Purdy Responsible, which they do a lot of crossovers with Avengers and the Batman universe, and I just love that idea. We've got Sinead Rivka for Transformers, and she really focuses on human and Cybertronian interactions. And we've got Mendia. She's great with those old school crossovers. So they had a crossover of like Gundam Wing, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Johnny Quest was just like thrown in there. Nice, Johnny Quest. Oh my God. Exactly. (laughs) Then we've got where we really just realize how old I am because I also love Yu Yu Hakusho, the creator Meiji has a series called The Loyal Retainer, and that's just awesome culture and world building. Dira Sudis, where that's just like wonderful, wonderful, dirty, dirty age play kink. And it's just like, ooh, this is fun. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a content creator called Lit Gal that she does beautiful, beautiful crossovers. And then what she does is she flips a lot of her fix into fiction as a professional. She's having some trouble with some trolls, but if you find her on AO3, you can then access a free part of her Patreon and still get a lot of her fan fiction that she was forced to remove from AO3 just because of trolls of being stupid. Oh, I did not know that. I have yeah. read a lot of stuff from Lit Gal over the years. Yeah, I did not know that. That's crazy. It is. It is. Then we've got more Yu Yu Hakusho. We've got Kazima Kuwabara who, again, explores minor characters. And I I wrote them a lovely email going, I love your stuff so much, I'm going to write again. And then we've got Midnight Wolfie, who's also in the Yu Yu Hakusho fandom. She's got a series called Fox Logic, where it's more culture clash and like, you know, what does a demon that's living inside of a human body, you know, how how do they see the world? We've got Dr. Girlfriend, who does a lot of Avengers and James Bond content. And then I've got Calico Cat, who just has this beautiful, effortless ability to smash worlds together in beautiful, beautiful crossovers. And I just, anything that pops up from them, I'm, I'm just like in awe. And it's just like, I love this. So I wrote them a, an email too and going, I love you. This doesn't fit in a review, so I'm just sending it as an email. (laughs) So those are the people that are in my bookmarks. So if anybody's just like, how do you spell all of this? If you want to find me on AO3 under Grizzly Teddy Bear, it's all one word smushed together and go to my bookmarks. You'll find all of these people there too. Nice. Excellent. Thank you so much for all of those. I always love the part where people get to talk about the writers that they enjoy reading because, oh man, you know. It's the secret thing I think we all do when we go to each other's bookmarks because we want to see like, okay, what are we all reading and saving? And you find like amazing stuff in there. It's my favorite thing to do. Grizzly, we have enjoyed having you so much here on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This has been amazing. Welcome. I've had a lot of fun and my squishy optimist has been a faithful companion and he's had fun too. Always good to hear. Check out her stories on AO3 and give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. 
Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.